All right, we're into Daniel chapter 8 this morning, and I'm going to look at my watch. Okay, I've got lots of time. Um, last week, I went a long time. That clock up there, it hasn't worked for the last few weeks. We put batteries in it, and so I spent all of last week's sermon thinking I had tons of time, but then I realized that it wasn't actually moving, and so I talked and I talked and I talked, but we'll see where we get today. So I have lots of time, like I said, but let's, let's see. If you're with us, Uh, Over the last number of weeks, you'll know that we have been looking at the book of Daniel and how the first um, number of weeks of that look at the book of Daniel, it was more of a historical account and we saw what Daniel was doing in Babylon. We saw how Daniel and his friends were able to impact society and, and move within society even though they were there as prisoners of the Babylonians. And last week we made this shift, and the last six chapters are going to be the shift to apocalyptic literature. And I I, I said this last week, I'm going to say it again. The term apocalyptic comes from the Greek word apocalypsis, and simply means revelation. So I mentioned, and I started last week by reminding you that every book of the Bible has a revelation in it. There's something in every bit of the Bible that we can find, and we can see God's story unfolding in our midst. Uh, as, as many of you know, as we do our scripture reading like Colin just did, we're, we're going through the books of the Bible this year. And, and it's interesting, even as we've been looking at some of those passages, and we see an anointing today of, of King David. This was before uh, what's going on now, and yet we see that God's story was at work even in those moments. And so I want you to be aware of that, that God is uncovering some aspect of truth to his people at all times. Now this week, chapter 8, is a continuation from chapter 7. And this vision, we can ascertain from it, it occurs shortly after the vision from chapter 7. Similar nature, there's animals present, and, and the animals in chapter 7, they, uh, they represented kingdoms and the divine realm. And we see some of that again in chapter 8. Uh, some, of the, some of the animals represent specific kings, specific countries, and, but it's very similar. Uh, chapter 7 was called a dream. And, and it, it's, it literally tells us that Daniel was almost in a trance, almost in a, in a dreamlike sense. And in chapter 8, it's called a vision. So there's this sh- subtle shift here as well. Now, as I said last week, this type of literature is hard to figure out. It's hard to put our finger on exactly what is being said in all of these circumstances. And so they're, they're, it, it's a chapter that we struggle through. It's a chapter that we look through and we try to figure out what I meant to, one of the things I meant to say last week that I didn't, that I'm going to say right now, is that there are actually six themes in chapter 7 to 12. And the NIV application commentary lays them out. First of all, the horror of human evil. We see what sin does in the midst of God's creation. There is a horror in that evil. We see an announcement of deliverance, that God doesn't allow that evil, doesn't allow that horror to remain, but that God steps into his creation and delivers his people. We see that repentance is necessary. We need to repent in order to be delivered. (coughs) If we continue to live in our sin, if we continue to live lives that we know are contrary to what God has called us to do, we're likely not going to find deliverance. And the revelation that there is a spiritual battle going on. Last week was heavy. When you think of a battle waging for 
this world, for the hearts of the men and the women of this world. And that battle rages on today. Number five is judgment for those who resist God and oppress his people. God cares for us. And when he sees his people being attacked, when he sees his people hurting and they've turned back to him for deliverance, God will not let that continue. And we're reminded that even if it's not in our time here on this earth, but if it's in glory in heaven, that God's people will experience new life. And so there's these themes throughout these chapters that are actually encouraging. There's some deep, dark, heavy uh, themes in these chapters, but there's also some things that we look at and we can say, this is exactly the hope that I need to get up in the morning and go through my day. So let's start Daniel chapter 8 by reading the first 14 verses. It says, In the third year of King Belshazzar's reign, I, Daniel, had a vision, after the one that had already appeared to me. In my vision, I saw myself in the citadel of Susa in the province of Elam. In the vision, I was beside the Ulai Canal. I looked up, and there before me was a ram with two horns standing beside the canal, and the horns were long. One of the horns was longer than the other, but grew up later. I watched the ram as it charged towards the west and the north and the south. No animal could stand against it, and none could rescue from its power. It did as it pleased and became great. As I was thinking about this, suddenly a goat with a prominent horn between its eyes came up from the west, crossing the whole earth without touching the ground. It came toward, toward the two-headed ram I had seen standing beside the canal and charged at it with, in great rage. I saw it attack the ram furiously, striking the ram and shattering its two horns. The ram was powerless to stand against it. The goat knocked it to the ground and trampled on it, and none could rescue the ram from its power. The goat became very great, but at the height of its power, the large horn was broken off, and in its place, four prominent horns grew up toward the four winds of heaven. Out of the one of them came another horn, which started small, but grew in power to the south and to the east and toward the beautiful land. It grew until it reached the host of the heavens, and it threw some of the starry hosts down to the earth and trampled on them. It set itself up to be as great as the commander of the army of the Lord. It took away the daily sacrifice from the Lord, and his sanctuary was thrown down. Because of rebellion, the Lord's people and the daily sacrifice were given over to it. It prospered in everything it did, and truth was thrown to the ground. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to him, How long will it take for the vision to be fulfilled? The vision concerning the daily sacrifice, the rebellion that causes desolation, the surrender of the sanctuary, and the trampling underfoot of the Lord's people. He said to me, it will take 2,300 evenings and mornings, and then the sanctuary will be re-consecrated. Wow, there's a lot going on there. And so I want to start with just giving a few points of reference. Daniel's vision takes place in a place called Susa, and you can see uh, on the map there, it's by the Persian Gulf, not far from Babylon. It was where uh, the, it was kind of the winter residence of the Persian king. So it would have been a place where they would go, they would get relaxation. And the Ulai Canal was a human-made waterway. And so it was a modern place. It was a place of great decadence. It was a place where the king could show his power just with what was all around him. And so that kind of sets the tone. A king who is living like he has all the control. A king who is living like there's nothing that can stop him. 
And then Daniel goes on to have this vision. And unlike last week where there were four beasts, this week there are two animals that we need to be aware of. First of all, a ram. And it had two horns and charges in three directions, west, north, and south. And then there's this goat that has one large horn, and it attacks ferociously with great speed. And Scripture says that it was moving so fast, it was almost hovering uh, over the ground. It was, it, 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 its hooves didn't even look like they were touching the ground. It was so bent on destruction, so bent on power, that it was moving and just flying around. And so you get this vision of a ram who is going off in three directions, a, a kingdom that's expanding, and then you get this vision of a goat who has one horn that is just coming through and plowing through everything in its path and overtaking the world. Now, here's what we do know about this vision. The goat's power only lasts a short time, and suddenly, Scripture says, it's cut off. So there's a kingdom that has great power, great influence, it's expanding, but its power only lasts for a long time. And then there's a horn that is broken, and in its place, four others grow spreading in four directions. Now, all up to this point is a prelude to what the focus of this vision will be on. What is going to be happening to the nation of Israel and to the people of Israel? We get a sense of a heavenly battle. Verse 11 reminds us and tells us uh, the prince of hosts, and we get that vision that, that idea that God is, is above and over all. But we also hear and, and that, that harm is done to, to Israel. There's going to be an end to their daily sacrifice. There's going to be a disruption of worship in the temple. Not only a disruption to the worship in the temple, but a complete destruction of the temple. And here's what we know in all this. Evil for a time is allowed to run rampant. God has allowed evil to run rampant with these powers. Evil, for a time, is allowed to disrupt. Nations are overthrown. People are taken into captivity. Lives are disrupted, and, and, and people are dismayed at what is going on around them. And here's maybe what's the hardest for us to take, and we get this in the Scripture, that, that this heavenly battle that's happening... For a time, it looks like evil is winning. It looks like, like, like if something drastic doesn't change, that something might happen. That there may be an overthrow of all the powers in heaven. And verse 12 is a really hard verse for us to interpret. And it, it, it's talking about the heavenly realm and, and the imagery, the language that's used is because of the rebellion, the host of the saints. And, it, and you get this sense that, that some in the spiritual realm were turning over and giving themselves up to the things of this world. Now the NIV in the John Oswald says indicates by, that, by, by of the saints is added and it suggests in a footnote that the host can be taken as the armies. And the Hebrew word for host usually has military connotations. And so this is a war that is happening, a spiritual war. The problem of the verse surrounds the reference to rebellion in the hosts and armies. It's hard for us to think of a rebellion in heaven. 
It's hard for us to think of people being in the presence of God and saying, uh, and, 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 and turning their back to them. And yet when Jesus was on earth, we see people that were right in his presence for the three years of his ministry, and they willingly turned their back on Jesus. Now, the heavenly realm clearly takes some losses in this battle. And is the battle, I want to ask today, against the horn? Or is God's people, is it against God's people who've turned their back on God? Now, chapter 9 actually has more to say about this, and we'll talk about that a little bit more next week. And it speaks of the rebellion of God's people. But here in chapter 8, it appears far more likely that this battle is spiritual in nature. It surrounds the powers that be, trying to overcome and overthrow everything that is of God. And the meaning of this passage, one of, one of the meanings, appears to be that God's people suffer at the hands of a power that rebels against God and seeks to take his place. Now let me tell you, that's still happening. There are evil forces in this world that are still trying to throw God, to eliminate God out of our society, out of the picture. And it's happening in this vision that Daniel has. And it's interesting here because he says, how long? How long is this going to happen? And the response is 2,300 days or 11, and, and we, what we don't know is it 2,300 days or 1,150 morning sacrifices or 1,150 evening sacrifices. We're not really sure on, on, on the meaning of that. But what we do know is it's either uh, a sacrifice morning and night that add up to 2,300 sacrifices or it was 2,300 days of those sacrifices. So um, again, it's a little confusing. It's a little hard to, to grasp all that's going on. But at this point in the chapter, uh, John Oswald says the action of the vision of Daniel 8 stops. And he says, note that throughout the vision, there is no indication of a reversal, a victory of the forces of God over the power of the small horn. The first half of chapter 8 actually concludes rather with this discussion between uh, two, two creatures about how long these horrible events will last. It's dark again. It's heavy. There's so much happening and so much going on. And there's so much that we don't know and that even Daniel didn't know. <coughs> and so Daniel asks for an interpretation. Verses 15 to 27, uh, we get a little bit of a, a filler about what is actually going on here. Verse 15 says, While I, Daniel, was watching the vision and trying to understand it, there before me stood one who looked like a man. And I heard a man's voice from the Ulai calling Daniel, or Gabriel rather, tell this man the meaning of the vision. As he came near the place where I was standing, I was terrified and fell prostrate. prostrate. Son of man, he said to me, understand that the vision concerns the time of the end. While he was speaking to me, I was in a deep sleep with my face to the ground. Then he touched me and raised me to my feet. He said, I'm going to tell you what will happen later in the time of wrath. Because the vision concerns the appointed time of the end. The two-horned ram that you saw represents the kings of Media and Persia. The shaggy goat is the king of Greece, and the large horn between its eyes is the first king. The four horns that replace the one that was broken off represents four kingdoms that will emerge from his nation, but will not have the same power. In the latter part of their reign, when rebels have become completely wicked, a fierce-looking king, a master of intrigue will arise. 
He will become very strong, but not by his own power. He will cause astounding devastation and will succeed in whatever he does. He will destroy those who are mighty, the holy people. He will cause deceit to prosper, and he will consider himself superior. When they feel secure, he will destroy many and take his stand against the prince of princes. Yet he will be destroyed, but not by human power. The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been given to you is true. But seal up the vision, for it concerns the distant future. I, Daniel, was worn out. I lay exhausted for several days. Then I got up and went about the king's business. I was appalled by the vision. It was beyond understanding. So what does this all mean? Well, first of all, we hear this voice on the water over the canal. And we are, are to, to take from that 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 is likely the voice of God. We, we, we have that imagery throughout Scripture. When Jesus is baptized, a voice comes down from heaven. This is my son whom I am well pleased. We get the imagery right in, in, in Genesis, in the creation account, where it says the Spirit of God hovered over the water. And so we get that sense that, that it's almost like that. The Spirit of God is hovering over the water. And, and Daniel, for a moment, is able to hear this. And this voice says, Gabriel, I want you to go to Daniel, and I want you to tell him exactly what this means. Now, Gabriel is, is mentioned a number of times in the Scripture as, as one of the, the archangels of, of, of God in heaven. And Gabriel literally means God's hero. I love that. I love the fact that, that God sends somebody he can trust, this angelic being that he can trust to deliver this message. There's this theme in Scripture of, of, of this trust with Gabriel as well. And Gabriel brings with him this interpretation of Daniel's vision. And the vision is concerning the appointed time of the end. Now, John Oswald says the general introduction might at first lead us to believe that the vision concerns the end of history, what Christians now to re refer to as the second coming. And he says, indeed, this phrase can have that sense, and some scholars opt for this meaning in this passage, but the clear interpretation of the context of the vision's climax places it squarely in the middle of 2nd century BC. And what we are seeing right now is this interpretation by Daniel, unlike what we see in chapter 7, where the animals in chapter 7, they're said to be four kingdoms. And in chapter 8, the ram with two horns are identified as the kings that represent the kings of Media and Persia. And the goat with the single horn is identified as the king of Greece. The king of Greece is likely the first king, Alexander the Great. And we know through history that he achieved an unprecedented dominion from Italy to India in an unbelievable time. He was young. He was 33 years of age when he died. But before he died, he pretty much conquered the whole modern world. Now, when he died, history tells us he left behind two sons, Alexander and Hercules. The Herac Herac sorry. Uh, these boys were ultimately murdered, and the world was carved up between Alexander's powerful generals. And likely, those generals are what are referring to those four smaller horns that don't have quite the same amount of, of, of power. But here's what we know. There is a heavenly battle going on. And at this point... After that is all made clear by Gabriel, 
the vision skips ahead about two centuries. And we're going to hear more about that in chapter 11, so in a number of weeks' time. And it goes to one of those particular horns. And most scholars agree that that horn represents Antioch's uh, the fourth Epiphanes. Now, he started out small, history tells us, and grew large. He was not actually the first in line to succeed his older brother, Salachiles the fourth, but through the political manipulation for which he became famous, he was known as the master of intrigue, he managed to push his nephew out of the way and gain the throne. He grew large through military successes, pushing his way, uh, pushing his influence into I Egypt as well as into Persia, Parthia, and Armenia. Not to speak of his domination of Palestine. Antioch's the fourth, however, established himself as a completely wicked and stern-faced king. Through his incredible intrusion and the disruption of the Jewish rituals. Here's what we know. He was angry about Jewish religious practice and stood in the way of making them able to worship in the temple. He wanted the Hellenization of all of society, everybody to turn into a Greek society. That was his goal. How can we make sure that every person that we overtake, every nation we overtake, somehow becomes like us? Which is, if you remember the first half of, of, of Daniel... It's kind of the opposite way that King Nebuchadnezzar did. He allowed nations that he had defeated to continue to worship, to continue uh, to honor their own gods. Nebuchadnezzar just thought, well, as long as you're doing that, you also have to worship this god, this god, and all the other gods, and everything is all okay. Uh, but Antioch's Epiphanes, he um, profaned the temple by introducing a holy obje object. And he sacrificed a pig in the temple. And we know that likely this was around the time that the temple worship was stopped. Likely this was around the time of the destruction of the temple and they weren't allowed to have their sacrifices anymore. Now what do we do with this? In 2023, what do we do with this information? Well, first of all, I think we need to be aware that this wasn't just an attack on God's people. This was an attack on God. This was saying that the God of the people of Israel is not even alive, is not even real, and we need to rid ourselves of this power. But what we get from this and what we bring great joy from this is we're told that this leads to all of these kingdoms' utter defeat. Verse 25, reminds us, yet he will be destroyed, but not by human power. God, again, like I said last week, God is in control. And the power to overthrow a wicked king who is overtaking all of the modern world at that time can only come from God. It's interesting. In verse 26, that Gabriel tells Daniel to seal up this vision because it concerns the distant future. Now, I mentioned the, the 2300 evenings and mornings. Was it 2300 full days or was it 2300 morning sacrifices and 2300 evening sacrifices? We don't know. Whichever one of those was true, this is what we do know. The people were assured that God was in control. He was not going to let evil reign in this society. 
For a time, evil would be rampant, but then Christ would come and he would fix that. God is in control. And that there would be an end point to their persecution. Now, are you confused? Stick your hands up if you're confused like me. Lots of us are confused. I'm confused. Take hope. The chapter ends with Daniel being exhausted and confused. Daniel had the archangel Gabriel explaining this to him, and he still was confused. And so we're in good company. If you're sitting here thinking, what in the world is Josh talking about? You can ask me later, and I'll say, I think it was this. I'm pretty sure it was this. You may even disagree with some of the interpretations of this. But it's normal. Daniel was confused. Not all was meant to be clear to us. And Daniel is asked to seal up this vision, to put it aside for a while. There's confusion as part of that. And so if you're confused, you're in good company. You're in really good company. You're just like Daniel. You're just like Pastor Josh. We're both confused. We don't know. But I want to end us with these six themes of of chapter uh, 7 to 12 again that I, I mentioned earlier. The horror of human evil was the first thing that we talked about. Attacks on God's people and God directly are happening in these passages. In this chapter particularly. There's an announcement of deliverance. Deliverance was coming from the work of devastation. 2300, there was a time when the, the temple was destroyed. There was a time when we are told that that devastation would end. Repentance leads us to deliverance. Now, this is not spoken about clearly in chapter 8, but it's going to be mentioned in the weeks to come. That repentance, when God's people turn their hearts and are focused on him, repentance leads to deliverance. The revelation that there was a spiritual battle going on. Now, chapter 10, we're going to dive into that even more. But it's clear that this battle is going to be raging in heaven and on earth. And if you're looking for hope today, there's judgment for those who resist God and oppress his people. There's a downfall of those who turn against God. God's people will experience new life. The sanctuary will be reconstructed. The presence with his people is restored. And even today, God's people experience new life. God's people understand that God is at work. God is working in our midst. God is powerful. And like I said, God is in control. So as we finish, I want to ask, what now? Where do we go from here? Like, what, what do we take from this? Well, first of all, I want to remind you that the problem with a lot of apocalyptic literature is, is that it's really hard to understand, number one. And number two, we'd like to know all the details. We'd like to know the dates. We'd like to know exactly what all the symbolism means. But we're reminded that no one ultimately knows the time of Christ's return. Matthew 24, 36 in the ESV says, and, and the verses after, I'm just going to read 36. It says, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. And I want to warn you that there's this, this, there's this whole industry in Christian circles of experts in end times theology. Some of it's really good, and some of it's really bad. 
You can look through and you can type in Pastor Predicts End of the World and you can find story after story after story of false teachers who have said Christ will return in 1982 or 1988 and, and he doesn't. But they get people to sell their belongings. They get people to, uh, to give away everything, usually to their church. And, and, and it's wrong. And so we need to be careful. We need to put what we are reading and what we are listening and the blogs we are re- hearing and the, 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 the videos we are watching. We need to put them up against the word of God. We need to be aware of false teaching. I've shared with you before that when I was in my 20s, uh, that I, could, I would read everything I could get my hands on about apocalyptic literature. And I could see Christ returning in every news event. I could see Christ returning in every way that a storm hit or a tornado hit or an or a earthquake hit. Here we go, I'd say. I'd be so excited. And then I realized that I was spending so much time reading the thoughts and ideas of other people and not actually studying the Word of God, that I was actually drifting away from God. And I wonder if, in some way, shape, or form, that when Gabriel tells Daniel, we want, I want you to seal up that vision for a time. I wonder if it was for his own protection. And so be aware of what you're allowing into your heart. But give grace for misunderstanding, even... Daniel warns that what he saw was beyond his understanding. He didn't get it. Daniel didn't. And so give grace to others who maybe are struggling a little bit about its meaning, what it means. And then two warnings as we finish. We do not know when Christ will return. Mark 13, 32 in the ESV says, But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angel in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. We fall into this in-our-time theology, don't we? Everybody for centuries, and I, I just said it about myself, said Christ will return in our time. You can see the signs. You can see everything lining up. And, and, and don't mishear me. I think some of those things are lining up, but time in heaven is a lot different than time here on earth. And everybody for centuries have been saying Christ will return in our time. The time is near And if we fall into that danger of just living as if tomorrow he might be back and just kind of stopping life, stopping telling others what Christ has done, stop telling others about the saving grace of Jesus on the cross, we're not doing what we've been called to do. And so don't become consumed. We don't know when Christ will return. It would be wonderful if it was soon. It would be great to be in his presence, in his glory. But here's what we do know. Christ is coming again. Mark 13, 33 to 36 says, Be on guard. Keep awake. For you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come. In the evening or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. Let us be prepared and ready, but let us continue to live 
and tell others about the great saving grace of Christ on the cross. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this passage. It's hard. It's confusing. It's, it, there's so many thoughts to it. There's so many different um, people who have different takes on it. And yet, Father, we know that through that all, that it, it was something, and it's a spiritual battle. We know that you will return. We know that in that confusion, we have been told by you that we are not to know everything. And so there's, there's some things that we need to just hold loosely. There are some things that we need to recognize that you will reveal all in your time, and we're thankful for that. But Father, I pray for these people that are gathered here today. And I pray this for myself, that we will not be so consumed with signs and wonders and what might be going on that we forget to continue to live for you, that we forget to share your word with others. Help us to be watchful and ready, like your scripture says, but also uh, living in this world, being part of this world and sharing the gospel both in season and in out. I thank you, Jesus. Amen.